Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded live as part of the Off-Air event series at Public Records in Brooklyn, New York, on October 25, 2022. The first five minutes of the podcast feature an improvised performance of music set entirely to the rhythm of the musician's heartbeats. Don't forget to check out our other episodes, and please enjoy the show. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with the Arcade Fire's multi-instrumentalist and composer, Richard Reed Perry, and percussionist composer, Susie Ibarra. Richard and Susie recently teamed up to create nine pieces of music set entirely to the rhythm of their own heartbeats and breathing. The collection is called Heart and Breath, Rhythm and Tone Fields, and it's an outgrowth of a concept Richard first explored in 2014 on his critically acclaimed album of classical music, Music for Heart and Breath, which featured collaborations with Kronos Quartet and members of The National. Also joining us, 
is cardiologist and best-selling author, Dr. Sandeep Johar. Sandeep's 2018 book, Heart, A History, gives an accessible and in-depth explanation into the heart's complexity and how modern medicine has evolved to perform increasingly daring open heart surgeries. The book begins by describing the circuit that brings blood between the heart and lungs and the evolution of the heart and lung machine, without which heart surgeons would not be able to operate. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Overtone Heartbeats, Cardiology on the Relationship Between Heart and Breath. I think some applause is appropriate. <laughs> so maybe a good place to start would be to get an explanation about how you guys actually put these tracks together. Did you have a system in place that dictated whether or not a tempo would be set by the heart or the breath or combo thereof? What? No system in place. <laughs> Amazingly, Susie and I, before COVID happened, had never met in person. And people that we knew mutually suggested that we try and make some music together. And so we said yes. And I said, I have this very simple idea that I had started making music with and made a record's worth of pieces of music of previously. But I would love to take it in a totally different direction. That record was much more of kind of classical chamber music all scored everything written out and i wanted to just like get into it with people in a human way and susie's this beautiful composer percussionist multi-faceted amazing musical creature and it just seemed like oh this is exciting let's jump into this and she has this really beautiful open approach to drumming and i thought we were and we're not going to get to meet in the same room because it's covid at that time montreal was locked down we couldn't even go out after 8 p.m., let alone cross the border. And it was like, if any music is going to be possible to be recorded, not in the same room together, even having never met and still have a vibe, it's music that is unrestricted in terms of its tempo. And so if we do this music, we can just record separately to the speeds of our breathing, to the speeds of our heartbeats, see what combines together nicely and let the music kind of blossom and grow from there. A very accepting musical yeah. format. Susie, you're going to need a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait, here Hello, you go. Hello, can you hear me? Um, I think what's really beautiful is we started to share these tracks. You know, we were tracking separately, but we were sharing them and sending across during the pandemic. And they were of each of our heartbeats, or they were of a recorded one, and sometimes it was a breath cycle and a heartbeat cycle, vice versa, or doubling on both, and really having an, an openness to exploring what that would be. And, and it was incredible to see um, how much space there was for us to create, even though we were you know, across a distance, but sharing it through our heartbeats. It was really kind of beautiful. And Susie, when we spoke last week, you mm -hmm. talked about the role that embodiment plays in performance and how integral mm. that is. Could you talk a little bit about that? Okay, I don't know 
quite what I remember what we said last <laughs> week. <laughs> Do you want to re remind me a little bit? Please? Well, I think you're just talking, I mean, you're, you know, technically speaking, the yes. nuts and bolts of what you're doing is you're listening to your, the heartbeat is giving you the BPM, the tempo. Right. And then I asked, well, what instrument do you use to get the rhythm of your breath? And Richard just said, just your breath, you're just listening oh, to yeah. it. And then so you started to talk a little bit about how much you actually had to occupy your body. Yes, I think also personally, I, I can't speak for Richard, but I f intuit it that we are musicians that am a part of the learning process, a part of the communicating process, very much embodied. I mean, you also sure. a person who does movement, right? Sure. So there's different ways that you can express and um, communicate music. and even if we're composing it on the page or something. For me personally, I need the hybrid practice and, I, and for me to be also a performer, I really need to have it in my body to express it. But this is another level that we talked about because the heartbeat, so much traditional culture, especially drummers and percussionists, is based off of these parts playings that comes out of the human body. But what's super unique, what Richard invited me into this invitation of this concept, is that we're continuing to, in real time, live, real time, stay with the heartbeat, not just fix it into an aesthetic right. kind of culture, like, but If it but slows down, all right, we're slowing down. Yeah. <laughs> if it yeah. speeds up, okay, we're speeding up. And in a lot of uh, drumming culture, that is definitely, especially Southeast Asian music and gong music, that's something that collectively ensembles do this, where we speed up, you know, especially if in gong and percussion ensembles, the drummer, will we play, we learn to play all the instruments, but the drummer will conduct it also as well as play. And there's, there's definitely that where it speeds up and it slows down. And I feel like we're always playing our heartbeats. Yeah, and obviously like any musical ensemble, you get in a synchronized kind of embodied space, right? You're all together, you're all united in purpose. and. But the idea with this music was to kind of relinquish a little bit of that, of like, oh, we don't all have to start on the one. It doesn't all have to be super coordinated. Actually, there's maybe there's room in music to like invite in people being not on different pages exactly, but like operating at different speeds. Maybe like, oh, we can actually be kind of out of sync in a way that turns into something really beautiful where you get to just listen to these things that are synchronistically in harmony with each other, but they're also kind of out of sync with each other. And it, actually, that is a really beautiful way to be. There's something philosophically really nice about like, actually, it doesn't, you know, many ways to make music not be top down. But this felt like, what if it was body outwards? It was like the, the heartbeat keeps getting to call the shots or the breathing, the breathing speed keeps getting to call the shots. And you don't have to get on a page together musically. You don't have to lock into a tempo. Yeah. You can actually just keep following something that winds and waxes and wanes and, and is is always there inside of each of us but we're just not really listening to it so much of the time and it's just kind of a way of listening deeper internally in a certain way whilst playing music so not only are we listening to each other and listening to ourselves and our own instruments but we're also listening to these interior sounds that we don't necessarily pay that much attention to most of the time the concept in general had its genesis i mean many years ago on an arcade fire tour right just kind of no, it was like when I was in university. Oh, for real? <laughs> was, yeah, and I was like, oh, one day. Originally, it was like blinking and heartbeats and breathing. These like 
these kind of involuntary body rhythms that are right. always going for all of us. And then I was like, eh, blinking is going to get really annoying. Let's just do the heartbeats <laughs> and the breathing. <laughs> it's a little more <laughs> zen or something, but it's not. I mean, one day I'll probably yeah. bring blinking in, throw some. Just, it'll be just like one guy with a wood block on stage, just like. Dum, yeah. dum. I, I think what I heard you say once was that um, you were looking for some contrast, at least in the noise of playing to just so many people, like just creating what's the quietest thing that you could create. Yeah, yeah. I made the first piece in the middle of the, kind of the first endless Arcade Fire tour. And as a performing musician, obviously like gaining independence in any scenario where you're doing two things at once is challenging enough. But when you're doing something that's so contrapuntal where you're there's multiple rhythms and it's moving around. Is that liberating or is it kind of a mindfuck? It's a little bit of a mindfuck at first because we don't do that as musicians. It's not like, all right, everybody get in your own zone and don't worry about what that guy's doing and go. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's, yeah. it's just rare that you get thrown in. I mean, you know, that happens in lots of improvised music, obviously, but like, okay, this piece, Parker is going to play the heartbeat. I am just going to, play one chord every time I inhale, and that's mm. it. That's what I'm going to do for a while. And Susie's going to be playing in sync with her own breathing, but filling it with little miniature miniature phrases and, and miniature beats. And we're like, OK, this piece, each of us is just going to play our own heartbeat. And then the next piece, we're all going to sync to Susie's heartbeat. You know, there's so many different ways that you can do it that are all different musical tricks and musical explorations, but that make really different musical results. So very liberating is the answer to that question. And I, I think just listening to the record and also reading Sandeep's book, which I can't recommend enough, Heart of History, um, it's given me such a heightened awareness of my own heart and breath, which I think is an important takeaway for any listener. And, and also maybe a heightened awareness of just the fragility of life because of these involuntary vital things that are going on. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sandeep, could you start us off with an explanation uh, of how the heart and lungs work together? I mean, I, I have to confess, I knew so little about the relationship before reading the book. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but, you know, I was just listening to what Richard was saying. I mean, you know, when we're in a room together, we each have our own internal oscillators, right? Our hearts, our breathing patterns, and very often those convey or sort of embody our emotional states. So when you put a lot of people together, you know, you can create dissynchrony because people aren't in sync, but there's beauty in that as well. So I think we're all sort of making music all the time just by being together and functioning it at our own speeds. So, you know, the heart and the breath are intimately related. So it makes perfect sense what you're trying to do musically. So the heart is a pump, but what's its purpose? Um, so the, the purpose that philosophers realized back in the 1600s is that the heart essentially delivers energy to the body, right? So people used to think that the blood was consumed, right? Why, why is there blood? The blood was thought to be a nutrient, and the, the heart was sending that nutrient out, and the blood was thought for a long time to be consumed by the heart's tissues. But then people, including a very smart guy named William Harvey, figured out that if we were actually consuming blood, 
the liver would have to produce like 500 pounds a minute, right? So clearly that wasn't happening. So the blood and the heart were doing something else. And what we finally figured out is that the heart is sending oxygen to the body and oxygen is needed for energy. So the heart and the breath are intimately related. And the way it works is there are two sides of the heart, a right side and a left side. Blood goes to the right side without oxygen because it's been emptied of oxygen because it's passed through the body. It gets sent by the right pump, the right heart to the lungs, gets oxygenated, comes back to the left heart, and then the left heart sends it to the rest of the body. So for a long time, people didn't know how that worked. And people were actually burned at the stake. Someone postulated that the heart had to send blood to the lungs to pick up oxygen. But the prevailing wisdom was that there was a hole in the heart that sent blood from the right side to the left side. And somehow that picked up a so-called what people call virtue. But anyway, they figured out that that was not the case. And plenty of people were burned at the stake. Is that a medical term? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> But now we know that virtue is oxygen or breath. And the blood picks up breath in the lungs and sends it to the rest of the body. I guess I had always assumed that the lungs were just kind of one stop on the whole circulation highway. I didn't know that it was going back and forth. So in this book, you're, you're talking a little bit about the history of how people understood the heart and the cardiovascular system, but also how that ties in with developments in modern medicine. And a big piece of that is the invention of the heart-lung machine, which, as I understand it, is what makes open-heart surgery possible. Right. So most people don't realize that the heart wasn't operated on until the end of the 19th century. Every other organ in the body, including the brain, had been operated on, but not the heart. And the reason why is maybe obvious. Number one, the heart's always moving. Right? It's very hard to cut into and suture something that's constantly moving. So to do that, you'd have to stop the heart. So let's say you stop the heart. Well, there are two big problems. <laughs> that <laughs> There's no oxygen delivered, so you get brain damage in three minutes, roughly. So that's not possible, although, believe it or not, doctors tried to do that, tried to rush through surgery within like seven, eight minutes, and people ended up brain damaged. And the other problem is that if you cut open the heart, you would bleed to death, right? Because the heart's full of blood. So those are two major problems. And much of 20th century medicine was figuring out how to circumvent that problem. And the solution happened in two steps. One was a really crazy surgeon named Walt Lillehei, who lived in Minneapolis, was thinking one day, well, when a woman is pregnant, She's supplying blood and oxygen to the fetus and clearing the fetus of waste products. So his idea, and this worked, was if I want to operate on a child who has, like, let's say, a hole in the heart or something like that that needs to be fixed, I'm going to connect that child to their parent, artery to artery, vein to vein, and have the parent serve as a human heart-lung machine. And they actually did that. And that was called cross-circulation, and it was absolutely insane. And he did uh, experiments on dogs, or a lot of experiments on If you're a dog lover, you probably don't want to read the book, because it, it hurt me to, read, to write about how many experiments were done on dogs. But he did experiments on dogs, and then cats, and whatever. And then finally, he did it on 
people. And he took mothers and fathers, hooked them up to their children, anesthetized both of them, and, and did these operations. Obviously, that was only going to get so far because problems happened. Parents actually died, and some developed brain damage because of problems with, you know, with the connections. So people said, this is the only operation in human history that could kill two people. So that was done for a couple of years, but then eventually it was the development of the heart-lung machine, which is like sort of the ultimate apotheosis of heart and breath, right? Of pump and breath, heartbeat and breath. But the heart-lung machine, it was invented by a guy named Gibbon, and he was a really kooky guy who worked with his wife at the Massachusetts General Hospital um, up in Boston. And they used to basically take, again, if you're an animal lover, probably don't want to read the book. They used to, they used to kidnap cats, stray cats, with tuna fish bait and put them in sacks and take them to the, to the lab. Basically, they figured out that if I take blood from, from a cat and trickle it down a column in a high oxygen environment, the blood will pick up oxygen and give off carbon dioxide. And then with a pump, I can put it back into the cat. And they sort of figured out how to do this. It took about 20 years, sacrificed a lot of animals, but they eventually figured it out. And that's the reason why, if any of you have had parents, or I hope you yourselves haven't had open heart surgery, the reason your parents lived, and your grandparents lived, was because of Gibbon, figuring out how to do this. At first, it was a a machine that was the size of a grand piano. And nowadays, when we go to the operating room, the machine is maybe, you know, about the size of this stool. You know, it's really small, and but it works. And that's why we have, you know, essentially probably about a million people survive every year because of that machine. On the topic of heart conditions, Richard, if you mentioned that you have a variable heartbeat, right, which is not something I didn't know about. It just, it's uh, erratic. <laughs> it just, I mean, it's, it just, uh, it goes up and it goes down like, kind of like crazy, which I didn't really, I kind of noticed like when I was in high school that that was true. And I was like, oh, I've, maybe it's just because I'm growing so quick because I grew really fast. But then over my life, it's like, oh, that's just what my heart does. It's like it fluctuates wildly. And at first I was like, oh, that's a problem. You got to check it out. And then. Turns out it's just kind of a thing. Some people have more static stationary yeah. heartbeats and some people swing wildly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't want to offer any medical advice. No, no, no I'm not looking for any. <laughs> yeah, do, do you, could you help? <laughs> but there are two uh, main things that come to mind. One is that you can have a very, very erratic heartbeat, which is called atrial fibrillation, which is very, very common. It's not deadly. It's a, it's a thing and you want to deal with it. If you don't have atrial fibrillation and you have what's just called heart rate variability, which is what you have, that's actually a very, very healthy thing. And that's probably why doctors you went to said, oh, that's fine. Because look, when your heartbeat is static, that's actually really bad. Like when you're dead, <laughs> your heartbeat doesn't change. So that's an extreme example of static heartbeat. When, when, we, when I'm in the intensive care unit and I see patients who are super, super sick, what, what ends up happening is that their heart rate variability stops. It becomes very static. 
So they end up with heart rates that are like 50, and they don't change. You want your heartbeat to change. So heart availability is actually a good thing overall. Again, not offering medical advice. Uh, so yeah. At the very beginning of the performance, and you were emulating this on the drums, this is a very basic question about what is happening in a heartbeat, and just kind of that And when you listen in a stethoscope to a patient's chest, what level of detail can you get? And can you tell us like what's happening in each one of those sounds in the pair? Yeah, I mean, so there are two sounds typically, and they basically are created by the closure of valves. There are two chambers on each side, on the right side and the left side. There's an upper chamber and a lower chamber, and they're separated by valves. So the valve allowing blood to go from the upper chamber to the lower chamber closes, and then the, the lower chamber is cocked and ready to pump, right? When that closes, that's the first sound, the lub, you know, like lub-dub. And then the second sound is when the lower chamber contracts forcefully to push blood out to the rest of the body. And then that valve closes and that's the dub. But you can pick up a lot of different things. Like you can, number one, you can pick up erratic heartbeats and you can pick up murmurs where blood is kind of going in the wrong direction. Not all murmurs are bad, but some can be very concerning. Okay, because I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot of that tonight. Is there anything that you guys, before we wrap up, that you wanted to ask Dr. Jahar? No, just let us know what you think after the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be great. Well, let's give it up for Dr. Sandeep Jahar. And this uh, episode of Sync for Science will air on December 14th. Thanks for having us. Be sure to check out Richard Reed Perry and Susie Ibarra's album, Heart and Breath, Rhythm and Tone Fields. It's available at offair.co and on all streaming services. The live performance in today's episode also featured Parker Spur on piano. Sandeep's forthcoming book, My Father's Brain, Life in the Shadows of Alzheimer's, will be available April 11th. Be sure to pre-order your copy today. Indigenous cultures have a long history of incorporating heartbeat rhythms in traditional music. And in the United States, the lineage of heartbeat-based music includes the contributions of percussionist and polymath Milford Graves. For more information on his work, you can go to milfordgraves.com. Sync for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, Social media manager is Bailey Constas, and digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Carrie Tolles, Nate Auerbach, Mindy Chen, Bernice Chan, James Hartnett, Laura Eldiri, and all the staff at Public Records in Brooklyn for their help with today's show. If you like this episode, please tell a friend about the podcast and give us a review and some stars. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening. 